0: Brunswick County had no high school for blacks.
1: Mm.
0: None, none. I went to a college in order to go to high school. I was the only child, only person in my house who went to high school. That was Reverend
2: Dr. Grady Powell. Despite the neglect of Brunswick County, Virginia, Reverend Powell got his high school and college degrees and started teaching in Emporia, Virginia in the mid-1950s. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Dr. Derek Allridge, and I'm a professor in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement Project.
3: And I'm Dr. Sandra Mitchell. I was a teacher and administrator in Fauquier County, Virginia for 40 years. I'm a senior instructor in the administration and supervision program at the School of Education at UVA, and I'm proud to say I'm also Reverend Dr. Powell's daughter.
2: You'll also hear from doctoral student, Alexis Johnson, who conducted this interview with Reverend Powell.
4: And you might hear a few questions from me. I'm Mary Garner McGee, and I'm the producer of this podcast.
2: So Dr. Mitchell, can you introduce us to your father, Reverend Powell, as a man and as an educator, what is he like?
3: Uh, well, first I just want to say that a Grady Wilson Powell Sr., I do want to say his whole name right now, names matter to him. Uh, He first was a terrific father, a former educator and pastor. He still, I think, could consider himself a preacher, and he's a terrific storyteller. Um, He was a staunch believer in education as a way to progress. He's a lover of reading, reads a newspaper still at 88 every single day, book lover. We packed up my parents' home a few years ago so they could come move near me. We packed up several thousands of books. And he was an agitator in a marvelous way. He was able to push folks, but not break relationships with those. Um, You know, they say there's some people that you work with and some people you work around. But he was also an activist and a trailblazer in that he practiced what he preached. So he just did not talk about desegregation. He got involved. He just did not talk about women's role in the church, which was a big topic for him. But he did something about it. So that's Grady W. Powell.
2: Thanks, Sandra. So let's start by talking about Reverend Powell's own early education.
0: I went to a Rosenwald school, and I'm sure you people in education (laughs) know something about Rosenwald, but uh, the school was a Rosenwald school, and if you know the way that Rosenwald was shaped, it was really one building. The biggest population in my school for seven years was 21 children. That was the total... Uh, of school.
1: What grades were the Rosenwald School?
0: One through seven.
1: One through seven. I okay. stayed
0: with Mrs. Austin for seven years. Oh, my wow. Teacher. Okay. I thought that Mrs. Lassie Austin, my teacher,
1: hmm.
0: was the finest person you could find. Whatever she said as an educator was right.
4: So, Dr. Alridge, what can you tell us about the history of Rosenwald schools like the one that Reverend Grady Powell attended?
2: The Rosenwald schools were part of a major school building project started by Julius Rosenwald, and Booker T. Washington was also involved. Rosenwald was the partial owner of Sears Roebuck, and, of course, Washington was the president of Tuskegee Institute. Uh, The Rosenwald schools were established uh, by Julius Rosenwald, and they required citizens to provide matching funds to start these schools. And these schools can be found, um, you know, throughout the South and throughout the Midwest. Uh, in total, there were about five thousand three hundred and fifty-seven Rosenwald schools that were built between nineteen twelve and nineteen thirty-two. And the purpose of those schools was to provide buildings for African Americans to receive an education. So they were. Very uh, important to the education of African-Americans at a time when uh, African-Americans had low literacy rates, when they had difficult time getting an education. So they were they were major. Um, And you can still see these Rosenwald schools uh, dotted across parts of the United States, particularly in the south where I'm from. I attend a uh, church uh, in South Carolina that was initially a Rosenwald school. So very important uh, part of uh, early 20th century African-American education. And those schools were in 15 states across the country.
4: Dr. Mitchell, do you have anything to add or stories that your father might have told you about his early schooling? No, except that I know
3: he uh, had such a high regard uh, for his teacher. And he, he just thought she walked on water.
2: And, and that's one of the things that I've heard in our interviews. They always talk about the impact of teachers mm-hmm. who taught in the Rosenwald School. So that's probably an under-examined part of the history of Rosenwald schools is actually the teachers who taught there.
4: Right. Highly respected. And were most of these teachers community members where they taught? How did people become teachers in a Rosenwald School?
2: Many of them were from the local communities. Uh, Some of them attended a local normal school. Others did not attend uh, a normal school, particularly in the early part of the 20th century. They didn't attend a normal school at at all. They had up to a few years of school themselves, and they were able to teach uh, in in these schools. So um, over time, though, uh, teacher education would become a a thing, and uh, these teachers would, you know, be educated at normal schools and at colleges and universities.
3: I remember when I first started teaching, this was in the 70s, there were a few teachers around who did not have degrees, still around. Uh, They were at the end of their careers, but they had um, gone to normal schools and things like that. I did learn a little bit of their history from them.
4: So that was his elementary and middle schooling. Um, Let's hear a little bit about how he got his high school education your high school was from
1: eight to 12.
0: No, my high school was from from nine through 12. I skipped the eighth grade and I went to St. Paul's High School beginning in 1946. The reason was that Brunswick County had no high school for blacks,
1: Mm.
0: none, none. I went to a college in order To go to high school. That college had a high school division and a college. That was St. Paul's College uh, in Lawrenceville, Virginia. St. Paul's chose to start us at the ninth grade because they had four years for college students. And they wanted to have four years for high school. So the county wasn't so concerned about colored folks' education anyhow, and they agreed with it. I was the only child, only person in my house who went to high school. There were people from the community who had gone to high school, but there was no bus service for, for blacks in Brunswick County until 1946. So those persons, the Blacks who had preceded me, had to go to Lawrenceville and get a room with someone. They, or they, maybe they had a cousin that they could stay. It was very difficult. No one that I knew actually went to high school and actually lived in Antilles. All of them lived with uh, someone in Lawrenceville. But I was with the first group where there was a bus service sponsored by the county to go to high school. The way it was started, however, was that someone had to purchase the bus and then the county would pay them for the operation of the bus.
1: Okay, wow, thank
3: you for that. Uh, Since Plessy versus Ferguson, there was separate but equal and the states In like Virginia, ensured they were separate, but nobody enforced the equal. So there was, they could not go to the white school, but there was no equal high school because there was no enforcement of it. Um, That's why 1954 Brown versus Board of Education was so significant because it said, now this is supposed to be enforced. But even in Virginia, there was rejection of that so that's why it was just so uh, significant and why he had to go to another place, because there was no equal uh, for him.
2: I mean, I know of this, you know, being from South Carolina, even in my hometown, even up to the 50s, sometimes they these students had to catch buses and go to high schools in other locations because there wasn't one there in the community. And, and sometimes they provided the bus transportation, sometimes they did not, and So there are a lot of people out there, uh, even some people who became educators, because of that, they would only go up to like the 11th grade. I think my mother just has 11th grade education because to get to high school, it was just a major undertaking to travel there.
4: So was it common for HBCUs like St. Paul's College to take up the responsibility of public education in these areas?
2: Morehouse did that and so did Tuskegee, a number of HBCUs.
4: Wow, and it just underscores
3: the eagerness that African-Americans had to get an education um, when the um, system was not offering this equitable education for them. They sought to get, to grab onto this thing that they valued anywhere that they could, but not all could get there because it was not accessible.
4: So after he finished high school, he continued at St. Paul's for college. So let's go back to the interview and hear a little bit more about that.
1: In talking about St. Paul's, what was your major um, at that institution?
0: I majored in elementary education, was a minor in history and English. So that I could leave St. Paul's and teach in the elementary school, which was my major. Or I could teach English today. Or I could teach history today. Yes.
1: So once you um, completed your degree at St. Paul's, you immediately started teaching? Yes, I did. Okay. What was your first um, position at?
0: I was, I was a teacher in Emporia. When I went to Emporia, Emporia is in Southside, Virginia, if you know anything about Virginia. You will go through Emporia going from Richmond to North Carolina. When I went there, the independent messenger was the n- newspaper of Emporia. And the, the owner of the independent messenger was the chairman of the school board. He printed the names of every teacher. For the black teachers, he would not put any kind of title to it. Mm -hmm. It was Aubrey Easter. But for the white teachers, it would be Mrs. Aubrey Easter. Mm -hmm. For me, it was Grady Powell. But for Levi Johnson, a white man, it would be Mr. Levi Johnson. And you know, I'm 22, I sat down and wrote the man and told him that that was not right. Listen, when the teachers heard that, they were sure I was going to be fired. They said, Grady, you don't understand how it is with teachers. The only way I knew that he got that, he must have told the superintendent, who must have told the elementary supervisor Miss Stamps, She came to my room and observed. And, uh, and when she was ready to go, she said, Mr. Powell, come, come here. Mom. And she was at the door. And she whispered to me, I heard that you wrote a letter. That's all that she said.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Years later, Miss Stamps was in the hospital, and I discovered that Miss Stamps was as interested in civil rights and social justice as I was. She just couldn't say it. Mm-hmm. She told me that because she had to report mm-hmm. to the superintendent that I have spoken to Mr. Powell about it. Mm-hmm. She said that's all she had to say. And she had carried out her responsibility.
2: Do you remember hearing this story from your father, Dr. Mitchell? I
3: certainly heard about Mrs. Stamps and what she did. Um, what I most remember, one very poignant memory that I have is that I was addressing an envelope, and I don't remember how old I was. I, I was writing to Marsha Parker. That's one of my friends. I wrote a little letter or something like that. And he said, no, you will put on the envelope... Miss Marsha Parker. And then he shared the story about how important it was to have titles in a formal setting, like an envelope. And he shared this story about the equitable treatment of people, the value of titles, the value of names. And I, that has stayed with me throughout my career, the value of names. And you hear some of that say her name, names, matter. Uh, with children um, that I have taught, and I teach leaders this right now, we have so many children who are from um, different countries that have difficult names to say. And I, I believe as educators, we have to make an effort to try to say their names correctly. And anytime we are we stumble and can do it, you know, we apologize and continue to try because names matter.
2: That's a, that's, a, that's a powerful story, Dr. Mitchell, and while you were telling it, it made me think about my own experience when I was uh, a young professor at the University of Georgia in uh, the late 1990s, and I developed a friendship with the custodians there. I remember telling them, please, don't call me Dr. Aldridge. Just call me Derek, you know, and that's what I would like for you all to call me. And one day, one of the women pulled me to the side and she said, we may call you Derek when we see you outside the university setting, but it's very important that we call you Dr. Allridge in this setting. And we want you to know that we're very proud of you. And that's why we do it. And that that means something. It really is a part of African-American culture.
3: It is. And um, that's the why the insistence that my dad, one of his first forms of activism as a young man, you know, in his 20s, was to write the paper mm-hmm. and say, this must be done.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and he well, didn't care that he could, might lose his job, you know.
4: Yeah. What might the consequences have been for that action? Mm-hmm. Could have been fired, I guess. Um, You know, there was no real due process in those days. Of course
2: not.
3: Uh, You know, just said he was a troublemaker, and you know, all kinds of of things like that. But Mrs. Stamps just whispered to him, "I heard you wrote the paper," and that was her. You know, radicalism happens in so many different forms, and I think her she did a radical thing by not chastising him. When she said, I heard you did, it was her way of doing one thing. She satisfied her boss by saying, Mm -hmm. I'll speak to him. But she affirmed what he had done. I heard you wrote the
2: letter. Mm -hmm. Amen. Let's hear a little bit more about his teaching style.
1: Can you tell us about your teaching style? How you taught? Like what specific subjects like were your favorite to teach at that level?
0: There were four of us who taught the seventh grade. And I was teaching at a time that there was a movement that was strong in civil rights Mm -hmm. and social justice. And that gave a broad system of education. So I taught more than the history. I taught more than arithmetic, we called it then. Mm -hmm. Uh, I taught more than English. One of the things that I did in the seventh grade that I thought was most effective, and I'm not sure that anyone else has done this, there is in each paper a cartoon, as you know, every day. And I cut out the cartoons and the cartoons always have a commentary on what's going on in life usually it's political Mm -hmm. i would cut those out and on on each day i would put it on a sheet and pass it around to children and i want to say what does this cartoon mean who can tell me what this cartoon means which meant that they had to listen to the radio a few people had televisions then or They had to go home and ask their parents about it. Mm. That I got some parents, and they'd come. They'd say to me, "You know, my child has me listening to the radio to tell them what is going on." I was so happy with that.
2: I thought this was such a creative way to get kids interested in current events. Did Reverend Powell do similar kinds of activities with you all at home?
3: Well, I I think of uh, three things when I think of him just looking at it as a father, it was simply that we grew up with family stories, this idea of current events as stories, you know, know your history. I, I knew the story of my mother coming from Pittsburgh uh, to go to Virginia Union and going into the White Tower and not being able to be served uh, at the counter. They would give her the hamburger but she had to walk out with it and so she refused to buy the hamburger. You know, I heard, I heard those stories. You know, heard the stories of she had the blank paper test in order to register to vote in Brunswick County, and uh, they didn't pass her at first until my father challenged them and said he was going to take them to court, and then all of a sudden she passed. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I, I so that was kind of the indirect teaching because we heard the stories. The other indirect teaching about social issues was that they pushed us to be comfortable in unwelcomed spaces. Um, Because my mother was from Pittsburgh, we traveled pretty much every summer because she was going to graduate school too, to see my grandmother um, up 17 through Winchester to get to Pittsburgh. Restaurants were supposed to be desegregated. My father insisted one summer that we stop at Duff's Rebel Restaurant. I'll never forget it. (laughs) And we, you know, we typically weren't supposed to be in there, but we went and he made sure we sat down and the family was served, et cetera. A few people got up and, you know, kind of in a huff and all of that, but those were real stories, but that was just, that was just the real thing.
2: Speaking of current events, in our interviews, many of our teachers have told us that they they've used current events to teach about the civil rights movement and to teach about black history in the classroom. And one strategy uh, that teachers use was to use the local newspaper. I'm reminded of one teacher who told me that she used a local newspaper so that her students could see the local perspective of history. But then they would read, the Wall Street Journal, if they could get mm-hmm. a copy of it, mm-hmm. or the New York Times to see what was going on across the country. Mm-hmm. And they would put this the, this local perspective in conversation with the national perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought that was a very interesting pedagogical strategy to use during,
3: mm-hmm. during that period. And right now, um, that's just called rigor and relevance
4: <laughs> <Right>.
3: <laughs> and relationships. I think that's the other R. <laughs> Like Reverend, Reverend Powell, Powell not only talked about uh, teaching strategies in the classroom, but how important it was for teachers to be involved in um, civic organizations as a part of the full teaching and social justice movement. Not only did my, my father talk about the strategies used in the classroom, but also the... Um, outward strategy of connecting um, his work in the classroom with organizations who worked for justice outside of the classroom, like the NAACP, for example. And he talks about how many teachers were involved in these groups were fired as a result of their activism. So let's take a listen to that.
0: When I went to Emporia, the first thing I wanted to know was when did the NAACP met? And uh, one person knew it, and they said, ask Reverend Shans. I went to that meeting. The people who were at that meeting, Reverend Shans S.W. Tucker. Now, you might have heard of the law firm of Hill, Tucker, and Marsh. That was the law firm that really helped with the um, 1954 decision of Prince Edward County had closed the schools. Reverend Shands, Samuel Tucker, Mrs. Tucker, Mr. Majette, and Grady Powell, five people. I can't remember anybody else that came to the NAACP meeting. Teachers who wanted to join the NAACP would send their membership to Reverend Shands who would send it away and use his address mm. to, f- to receive the car. Because sometimes a postman that had been known would tell people who tell who were the persons, members of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And if the teachers were known for that, there was a time you would be fired if you mm-hmm. joined the mm-hmm. NHCP. Mm-hmm. There was a There was quite a control.
1: So you talked about um, this like remarkable activism with the NAACP. Were you involved during your time um, when you were teaching in any other um, organizations like any teacher organizations or any other civil rights or political organizations at the time?
0: I was involved of course with with what was called the VTA. That was the black group mm-hmm. of teachers, the VTA. Mm-hmm. But it that was not in and of itself a civil rights group. Mm -hmm. The teachers were very forward, but Mm -hmm. they couldn't be in these southern schools. Uh, J. Rupert Packard, who was executive secretary of the Virginia Teachers Association, Mm -hmm. was fired from Newport News. He was a principal in Newport News because he urged teachers to vote. Mm -hmm. And they fired him. Mm Tom Henderson, who became the dean at Virginia Union University, was fired Mm -hmm. civil rights and social justice.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Most black teachers were members of black teacher associations, like the Virginia Teachers Association. Um, In South Carolina, my home state, the Black Teachers Association was named the Palmetto uh, Teachers Association. And so... um, These associations were instrumental in giving teachers a place to learn about, you know, cutting edge curricula, uh, to learn about black history and to have a space to talk to other teachers uh, about what was going on in classrooms across uh, the South. The NAACP was a little different in the sense that it was viewed as a subversive organization, and it is true that some teachers uh, did not openly support the NAACP, but were oftentimes helping the NAACP behind the scenes or were uh, either members of the NAACP, but did not participate in some of the outward facing uh, social activism. So we wanna be clear that that does not mean that they were not activists because they weren't out in the forefront. Uh, historian Tondra Loda Jackson and Patrice Grimes have coined this term called pedagogical activism. They were engaging in a form of activism by how they were teaching in classroom, what they were teaching. And you know they were pedagogical activism by means of inspiring their students who would sometimes go on to become activists, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So Reverend Grady Powell spent the first few years of his career teaching in Emporia, but he had a calling to the church that his mother told him started in the womb.
0: We would walk from our homes to church. Poplar Mount Church started in 1865. My daddy was a deacon, was ordained as a deacon at that church the year I was born, 1932. My mother said that she was pregnant, when she went up and knelt with my father for um, the ordination prayer. And um, she thought that that probably was why I'm a minister, that the Lord might have called me uh, while she was kneeling with my father in the ordination prayer.
2: Dr. Mitchell, when did your father start preaching?
3: Well, I understand that he started when he was 17 years old. I don't know when he was ordained, but I do know that he started preaching when he was about 17. And um, he retired from full-time ministry in 1997. Uh, so you can see the um, arc of, of all of that. Um and, he, and did so many things, preaching and activism in that time. After 1997, as a full-time preacher, you might be interested to know that he served as an interim pastor to five or six churches in Richmond until he was 80. So that was 63 years. And in 2019, he gave the invocation at the dedication of Arthur Ashe Boulevard for the, the Virginia Historical Society, which you can see online if you'd like to take a look at that. Uh, but that was really the last uh, delivery of something for a large audience in 2019. Um, and of course, he didn't do anything in 2020. He did a one sermon on Zoom <laughs> in 2020 from his, uh, from his dining room. So, his preaching span, we're talking from, seven, from age 17 to age 87 uh, in 2020 when he, he did that. Um, he became a full-time pastor, I believe in 1960, which is what he had always done. The reason my father taught, the reason he worked in a paper factory and other things was to make money for his family but um, he always wanted to be a full-time pastor. And when he was called uh, to a church, I believe it was Quiochison in Richmond, um, so that they could make ends meet, uh, my mother decided to start teaching full-time. She had prepared to teach. And uh, he tells the story in this next clip of how grateful he was to my mother for allowing him to become a full-time pastor.
0: I would like for persons to know that, that my wife has been a partner in giving me the opportunity to be an activist, mm-hmm. my wife. I was teaching, I was getting the money, mm-hmm. but uh, one day I came home and my wife said, Grady, let me go out to teach and you become the full-time pastor. The church was not paying me enough to take care of my family. Mm -hmm. But my wife drove, let's see, I think it was like 46 miles one way, which meant that she drove 92 miles a day to take a a teaching job in Louisa, Virginia. And uh, she has been working ever since. And there was no way I could have been the pastor I could without that kind of wife.
2: Looking back on his career as a minister, in what ways do you think his experience as a teacher influenced his work in the church and as an activist?
3: I think that he, when he saw something wrong, he wanted to do something about that. And um, in his preaching, um, very similar to his teaching in that he wanted to make um, his lessons or sermons relevant and engaging. I think that that lines up. He also just loved children. He started uh, the children's story within the service. He was very concerned with having an active youth group in our church, but he was also, I think that activism, that agitation that was happening while he was a teacher and an early preacher started to happen as a full-time minister. Um, particularly at Gilfield, he applied to have the first church preschool in Petersburg, Virginia, and started that um, for daycare for children because he knew families needed that. He started what he called the nutrition program to feed families free, you know, fighting for the impoverished and those kinds of things, um, marching, all of those, um, desegregating schools, all of that. I believe came out of the activism that started while he was teaching and part-time preacher and then in the full-time pastorate.
2: So, Dr. Mitchell, you are quite the civil rights pioneer yourself. You were one of the very first students to desegregate the public schools in Petersburg. We're going to hear from your father's perspective in a minute, but first, what do you remember about that time?
3: Well, I, I was nine, so I remember through the eyes of a child. So to say that I was an activist is not accurate. I did what my parents told me. (laughs) And my father sent my sister and and me down to um, say that we were going to, of all places, Stonewall Jackson Elementary School. So he went there and I believe he will tell you in the clip uh, how he made that happen, how he talked to the school superintendent. But what I remember, uh, I remember walking in and I remember crowds of people, no one jeering or anything. I just remember a crowd watching us. I knew it was a big deal. I remember one teacher making a big deal of the fact that I had gotten the only E and E was like an A, excellent in the class, in handwriting and she made a really big deal about it. I remember being um, really proud of that, but I always wondered, her name was Mrs. Wells. And I've always wondered if Mrs. Wells did that as a way of changing mindsets of children in the classroom about this little black girl in the class, because I was by myself. There was another black girl that was in fourth grade, but they did not allow us to be in the same classroom. It would have been helpful. (laughs) they did not allow us to be in the same classroom. But um, I remember that. And then I remember kids stuff. You know, I remember walking into the cafeteria, um, not knowing where to sit. I remember forming friendships with some white girls um, who they were going to meet on the weekend, but told me later I couldn't come to their house. You know, I remember those kinds of things. I remember my sister getting ready to get in a fight with one of the white girls because she had called her the N word. And though, though, you know, I remember little things like that uh, that were disturbing. The thing I most remember is that we were getting ready to do chapter six in the Virginia history book on slavery. I didn't want to go to school. And I think I lied to my mother about I was sick or something, but she didn't buy it. I had to go anyway. But those are the kinds of things that I remember, um, you know, not, not knowing you were an activist or you were a trailblazer or anything like that. I remember from the personal side.
1: Could I ask you about being a former educator, were you involved in um, any movements related to educational equity and justice um, during that time in Petersburg?
0: Yes. I want to tell about Sandra. Uh, Petersburg had not integrated any schools. And I was coming from Richmond. And I stopped by John Mead's office. And I have always tried to be the person who uh, kept in conversation with both Black and white. because Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of world we have to make. And I've done that even now when I'm doing it. I went by Mr. Mead's office. I knew him extremely well. He was a nice guy, Super as you, as you call, might call nice. He was the superintendent of schools. And I said, uh, told Mr. Mead, I said, Mr. Mead, I have made a decision to well, my daughters are in elementary school to take them to Jackson School in September. This was in the summer. He said, now, Reverend, I'll tell you, I, I want to talk with you. And, and he said, I think you would know that I'm a man of my word. I said, yeah. He said, the reason I wouldn't want you to do that is that uh, I am trying to get some money through the school board to put in recreation for colored children in Blandford." And if you do that, they're just going to get angry. And 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 just wait, because we have got to do that. And I listened to him, and I said, "Well, Mister Mead, yeah, I, I can see that. If you could guarantee me today, and I believe you're a man of your word, that if not this September, but the next September, you will come up with a plan for integration." And a parent won't have to be alone. And he looked and he said, yeah, you know, I'm of your word. But I can't promise that. Because I don't know how the community will feel at that time. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know how the school board. I've got to get the school board uh, into that. I said, well, Mr. Mead, let me tell you. I think you know that I'm a man of my word if you can't promise me when you will do that the next year, then I just want you to know I'm going to take my two daughters to Jackson School this September. He said, well, I understand. He said, and let me tell you, I want to promise you today that your girls are going to be safe. And he said, I'm going to call the principal of Jackson School and I want you to take those girls up before school opens, and have them to meet the principal, Miss. Um, what is the principal' name, Sandra? Miss. Oh, Miss Cogbill. Miss Cogbill. And he did. He kept his word. The day that I took them, there were two other families that wanted to go with my daughters to integrate that school. It was a man named Hermans Fauntleroy, who was a teacher, mm-hmm. and John Cole, who was a male person, and he was a Black entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and my daughters. And Crystal Woods, we had one other, that's right. So we had seven. Mm-hmm. And they all got into my car, mm-hmm. and I drove. Jackson School is on Washington Street, and uh, West Street is runs perpendicular into Washington Street. So I stopped in front of the bank, and a crowd was across the street, banked with people. Mm. That frightened me, but I had to be brave. You know, got these little girls, and uh, they all were behind me like ducks. And uh, I took them down, and I went down West Street. They followed me. I walked down uh, across the street. I crossed, and then I turned right and went through the door, and Miss Cogbill was at the top of the steps, waiting for me. As I was walking to the doors, a man came out white and reached his hand out. Well, it frightened me a bit. You know what he did? He said, Reverend Powell, I am so glad you're doing this. And just shamed back in the crowd. And I took my to this one that t- talk with you, little girl, and you don't feel good because I let them loose and I couldn't go in with them. But they had already Miss Cogbill had told me that uh, the two teachers who, who would be with teaching them, one was well, uh, my name, mm, Charlie Spain, Miss Spain, and Miss Peoples. Mrs. B. and that was the integration of the schools in education and that open education. But you know, the whites started the private schools and the blacks started going there, in, in not in a small group, but in large groups. Dr. Mitchell, why do you think
2: your father in particular wanted you and your family to be leaders in the desegregation process?
3: Um, I believe because it was there. I just think that he believed Brown versus Board of Education said that we needed to be in schools. It had to happen. So why not us? Why not? I do know now as an adult, because I talked with him about this as an adult, that it must have been difficult for Parents who wanted to fight the battle of civil rights to put their children on the front line.
4: Do you think that early experience influenced your career as an educator? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, in, in, in this way, I, well,
3: I believe the reason I became an educator was that I'm from a family of educators. You know, well, you heard my dad, my mom. So education was just a part of my family. That's why I became a teacher, but what that experience did prepare me for was going into places where I might not be welcomed. When I uh, became an administrator in Fauquier County, I'm in the central office, there were a few years there when it was um, Sandra Mitchell and Pauline the custodian as people of color in that central office. Um, that changed, you know, here and there, but none of that rattled me because of um, that experience that I had as a nine-year-old. And I, I've had lots of experiences like that. And I'm, I'm sure Dr. Aldrich has too. <laughs> yes. uh, the only one.
2: I want to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about an act of racialized terrorism against one of Reverend Powell's congregations and his time at the famous Selma March in Alabama. When I was a teacher, I sometimes struggled to teach the topic of race. I taught in the early 1990s and the Civil Rights era seemed like a century earlier to most of my students. There was one event though that provided an opportunity for me to engage the issue of race and to show my students that much work remained to be done. I remember the acquittal of four policemen, for the beating of motorist Rodney King in 1992. My students could not believe the verdict. They could not believe that the cops got off, my black and white students. And this gave us an opportunity to talk about the connections of what was happening in their time in 1992 to what was happening in the 1960s as it pertained to the police treatment of African Americans, particularly African American men. So, um, You know, current events provide a great opportunity to make the connections between the past and the present, the present and the past. And so with the Teachers in the Movement project, we encourage folks to check out our videos to see how they can make those connections. At Teachers in the Movement, we take the stories and ideas of educators like Reverend Powell, and we interpret them for the contemporary classroom. Check out all of our resources on teaching about race and democracy and information about our teacher training programs at TeachersInTheMovement.com. We're back with Reverend Grady Powell. In addition to his teaching career, he served as a pastor for a number of churches. We're going to talk about an act of racialized terrorism against one of Reverend Powell's congregations,
1: so could you talk more about um, your your time as a pastor and your civil rights activism um, at Guildfield Baptist and just in Petersburg in general?
0: The very first year I was there in the fall, mm-hmm. someone burned a cross against the church. I never had been at a place where a cross had been burned. We were in revival. As we were singing the first hymn after the sermon, my usher... He ran down the side, and he said, a bomb is being burned outside. What? I went right back to the, to the uh, pulpit and said, to stop the hymn, and I said, I don't want you to rush out, but let's all get up and walk outside. There is a cross being burned. I haven't ever seen a cross being burned, and I want you to follow me out. Let's look at it. And we went out. And the they ushers, the trustees, got some water and pulled it down and poured it over it. it that cross was about 25 feet in the air. Wow. And it was back against the church. But that building was brick, and it couldn't set it on fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the people came from out of town to burn a cross. I think they thought Wyatt Walker was still there mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he was much well-known mm-hmm. than I am. He was working with King... But I was the pastor, and I asked for that. Uh, asked, I wanted to keep that cross as, as a symbol, you know, up, down through the years and be a part of our history. But the uh, policemen wouldn't do it, because they said they had to have it for evidence. I wonder what they did with that cross. But that was something that was very meaningful. Dr. Mitchell, do you
2: remember when this happened? Did your father talk about it or include it in his sermons? What sort of impact do you think this incident had on him as an activist?
3: As far as that particular um, incident, uh, I do not remember it um, specifically for that night. I know something had happened, people were talking about it, but I was not there to witness it. It was a, a night revival. But as far as that cross-burning and the impact on his activism, I'll simply say this um, in retrospect, that I believe it certainly affirmed to him that something needed to be done and that the work that he had started needed to continue. But that cross-burning at Geofield did not have to happen for him to continue his work as an activist and continue his speaking out Um, for things. His mind had been made up. Um, It was just a part of what he did.
2: Well, we can't wrap up our time with Reverend Powell without hearing about his trip to Alabama to participate in the march
0: at Selma. So Let me tell you of one thing that is a part of the significant history books. I was in the Selma to Montgomery March. Gilfield Church sent me uh, to, to uh, Alabama to be in the march. You know, King was asking everybody to come in uh, and, and meet them where they had this civil rights march. that you, you will read about so much, the Selma to Montgomery march. Gentlemen and ladies, I was there. And let me tell you something about getting there and how nerve-wracking it was. How I got there. I was talking about this, this march. I was talking with the executive committee. Dr. Colson, who was the head of the education department at Virginia State, turned to me and he said, Pastor, would you like to go? Oh, I said, oh, I would love to go. You know, I can't go. And Colson, who was the head of the finance board, turned to the other two and said, I think this church ought to pay for him to get there in there. Do you know they voted right there, it was only three of them, to send me to Montgomery. And all I had to do was to bring them the bill. Well, I had a diner's club card and I could put it on diner's club and by the time it would come to the fruition and I had to pay for it, they would have given me the money. Okay, I immediately, the next, I was so happy. The next day I called the airline in order that I could fly into Montgomery because I was going on on the last day. That was what King was asking. Not that people had to walk all of the days mm-hmm. to go the last day. Meet them out uh, nine miles from Montgomery, and then you could be in the last of the march, the day. And uh, I couldn't get a plane mm-hmm. into my Then I tried the train. I couldn't get a train. The buses were low. They said, they can't take anymore for a trip to Montgomery. Well, I called a classmate. One of my classmates, his name was John Haywood Cross, for some years before I went to Geoville, had become the pastor of 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Now, you might remember that church because four girls were killed on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. My classmate was their pastor, and he was speaking to the Sunday school in the basement when that bomb went off on the steps outside, it was so strong, he said it knocked him down, and he was in the middle of the building. He said it had to kill him, anyone who was near that step. He was the pastor. I called John, and I told John. John said, great, let me tell you. See if you can get a plane to Birmingham, because I'm going to be leaving a little after midnight to drive to the spot. Where we all have been sat to, to meet them and I'm going to be walking the last day. I call, And I got a plane into Birmingham. John met me at the airport, took me to his home. His bedroom was on the front. His guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. And here's what he said to me, and it frightened me. I thought Virginia was bad. <laughs> but he said, now, Grady, listen, he said, we never know when we're going to be bombed or shot at. And we'll, we have to prepare for it. He said, once you put the lights on, don't stand at the window that anyone can see or shadow.
1: Hmm.
0: That was enough. He said, if you hear anything outside, don't get up. Just roll out of the bed and roll under. Ladies and gentlemen, it frightened me. You know, i had I'd had some real experiences in Petersburg. Oh, yes, but nothing like that. But I say to John Cross, and about 1.32 o'clock, we got out, got in his car. And when he went out to start the car, the first thing they had was, you you know how um, mechanics have a little, little track that they get under to roll up under the car to look at? He had that. And he said, everybody was told that you have to get on that. Go and look under your car before you ever started. Because we have had people when someone has put a bomb under their car and they don't know it. And all it takes is motion for it to do something. Frighten you at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he looked under it and we went down and I was in the march. I have looked at that picture on television so much. You, if you look at it, you will see a man who had crutches. He had walked all of the way from Selma. And they have shown him so much. I said, oh, if I had known they were going to show him, I would have gotten up by him so that I could have been seen in (laughs) that march. It was so crowded that you could not sit down. It was so crowded. You just had to try to flop down where you were on your knees. Uh, and that, and that's where I was that day. I was in, in that, in the march. Yes.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Um, I just, oh, oh, we could just go on and on and on and talk. This is just so wonderful. Sure. I do wanna <laughs> um, ask you uh, one more question. Um, just about, just thinking about you as a, such a legend and a pioneer in the the civil rights movement what would you want people and even your time as an educator because you did remarkable things too as a teacher what would you want people today especially um, young people um, people going into education um, or students to know about the civil rights movement both locally um, all the places you've um, been as well as nationally
0: i think that life calls us to move beyond our comfort level. Mm -hmm. And that is where we have been by tradition and culture. Mm -hmm. We have been with Black people. Mm -hmm. And that is a kind of tribal thing. We can't help it. We were in that tribe. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a tribal thing. Mm -hmm. But, But we have got to move beyond that. And if you are in a place where there are are 18 Blacks and one white, Mm -hmm. I would say to persons, feel it's my responsibility to try to make that minority feel important, which minority and or majority, you are important. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to say to young people. Mm Because we have risen up now, and we have a little more power. And some people don't like that we have a little more power. We still have problems. Listen, listen, I know we have problems. But I would say, that's what I have tried to do. Therefore, I say to you, you good people have the opportunities that I've never had. Mm I mean, Professor, you are a professor at the University of Virginia. Is that
1: right? Yes,
0: sir. Yep. A professor, when I finished high school, if I had gone to the campus of Virgin- University of Virginia and said I want to register, they would have put me in jail. And here you are as the professor, and I'm so proud of you. Here you are, a student coming to interview me on behalf of some group from the University of Virginia. Thank you, good people.
1: Yeah,
2: We really appreciate everything you've done uh, as an educator and as an activist and a a minister. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Derek Allridge, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sandra Mitchell. This has been Teachers in the Movement, For more information and to view the video interviews, go to TeachersInTheMovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a part of the Virginia Audio Collective. Our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at VanillaBeats.BandCamp.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Thanks for listening.